hear me okay? Okay, good afternoon and welcome once again. My name is Tochi Ginigemba. It's so lovely to see many friendly and familiar faces in the audience. We thank you for coming. I'm trying so hard not to fangirl, as you can, as you can probably tell, because I have beside me an inspiring, inspiring woman whom I look up to so much. For those of you who do not know who Miss Yvonne Ike is, I will take a few minutes to quickly read her profile and get us all initiated. A few minutes, please. A few minutes, so, yes. So, so we can get and then, into the and then we'll get right, right into business. Okay. Ms. Yvonne Ike is the Managing Director and Head of Sub-Saharan Africa, excluding the Republic of South Africa, at Bank of America. Yvonne has more than 25 years' experience in financial services sector, and since joining Bank of America in September 2014, Yvonne has established the bank as a leader in providing international financial services in the sub-Saharan Africa region. Yvonne is passionate about actively contributing to Africa's development, and in 2017, she founded Adara Foundation, an NGO that focuses on women, education, and entrepreneurship in Africa. In 2020, Yvonne joined the Global Advisory Council of Oxford University Business School. She has received many international awards, including being recognized by the Queen of England as one of the top 200 businesswomen in the UK to make significant impact in society. And in 2019, she was also recognized as one of the top 100 women CEOs in Africa. Ms. Yvonne Ike, welcome again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for being here. She had warned me, warned me sternly. We have a lot to talk about, Tochi. Let's dive straight into it. I have a lot to say. So let's not spend too much time on, on introductions. So the first question that I'll that ask you is, you have attained so much success professionally. You're an inspiration to so many young Africans, so many women, so many Nigerians. And you have so many options in terms of career choices, but still you stay invested on the continent through the work you do with your current bank, through the Adara Foundation, and all of the different foundations that you're involved in. What is it about Africa? What is it about the continent that keeps pulling you back home? Tochi, thank you so much for having me here today. So I, at this stage in my life, I've seen it's two things. It's the excitement about the continent and it's the sheer frustrating about the extent to which we're underperforming that keeps me engaged. And for me, it's a life mission. So when I talk about the potential for the continent, um, we'll speak a little bit more about the narratives. But we have all these narratives that, frankly, we just need to disabuse and face a new reality. And... We need to face the real potential and understand it quite deeply and the frustration about what we haven't done to achieve our potential and the role that I can, I can play through finance um, 
through advocacy in a number of different areas for women, uh, for education in the continent, keeps me committed to every day seeing what I can do to contribute to Africa's socio-economic development. Mm. We've so come a long way. We have so much to do. Mm. So when we talk about the narrative of Africa, and for those who are not Africans or not from the continent or have had limited exposure to the continent in the room, some of the times, or a lot of the time actually, the narrative is one of war and hunger and poverty. Mm. How reflective is that of the current situation of things? And I ask you this because you are not only involved in the continent from a strategic and, mm. I guess, more high-level point of view, but from a grassroots point of view as well. Tell us how reflective the situation that is portrayed in the media is mm. of what is actually happening in Africa. The interesting thing about where we are in Africa's development right now is a lot of the things that um, are reflected in the media are a distorted version of what's happening, frankly, in most parts of the world. In most parts of the world, we have conflict. We have economic development challenges. We have, um, you know, social, social, we have population issues, we have climate, etc. So those things um, are things that in some ways have been distorted about about us as a, as, a, as a people. What I think is more disturbing is even the narrative that we carry up around about ourselves. So some of the more common ones we've heard, Africa rising. Yes, but we've been underperforming. We below our human and natural resource potential. Africa is a country, is, a, is not a country. Absolutely, it's a continent. But until we start thinking about Africa on a regional strategic basis, our ability to, to fuel development, economic development, is just limited. And we'll talk a bit about the, the, the areas. Um, so I would say right now, Eastern, Eastern Africa is outperforming certainly West and potentially South Africa, because they are operating on a more regional basis. They are taking a more strategic view on how things are going, and that's what helps work. The large population, and we have a large demographic population, absolutely, with massive potential. Again, we'll come back to that in a minute. But right now, it's a ticking time bomb. Until we figure out ways to have the right levels of education, and the right levels of job, job creation for our youth who have massive potential, we still don't have our narrative right. Africa is too, so then the external narrative, Africa is too risky. Mm. Um, but Africa is, some of the companies and initiatives that have been done in Africa have been some of the most successful in the world. We Africans need to talk about that a lot more in a more organized way. Africa is a victim of climate, or climate doesn't even matter to us Africans. Climate matters to everyone on this living God, on God's green earth. And we're not victims of climate. Of course, we're suffering from climate, and we are one of the, we, our proportion of suffering compared to what we contribute is much exponentially higher. But we also are one of the best positioned parts of the world to bring global solutions to 
climate and actually global, global development at this time in our continent. So with climate, for example, we have the, 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 the natural resources to actually contribute not just to solving our climate issues, because in most countries anyway, we're, net or ne we're, negative, we're negative contributors to the, to the carbon emission issues, um, but we can use our resources, whether it's forestation and, and so many other things that we can use to actually contribute to the world's, uh, to solving the world's problems. So the narratives that we have, um, I think have made us, even where we say them ourselves, because we want to sound bright and beautiful about the future, we, we're, we're, we're missing, I think we're missing the point on a number of things. Our future is bright. It's choppy. There's a lot for us to do. Um, and it's something that includes not just Africans, it's also people who are interested in Africa. We must have a, an inclusive approach to dealing with Africa at this time. So that future is there, it's bright, but we must be more honest with ourselves in the narrative that we tell ourselves about our continent and the narrative that we allow people to say about us. And we do that through action. More, more doing and less talking. I love that you said we have to be honest about the narratives we tell ourselves and what we allow to be portrayed to the through the global media. And when we talk about this concept of narrative, I, I have to ask you, this is, this is probably a general statement, because yes. as you said, Africa is not a country. It's 52 different countries, 1.2 billion people projected to double in the next 20 years. So yeah. it's a huge, huge demographic. But I have to ask you, based on what you see and what the current trends are, do you think that Africa, and transparently speaking, is on the right track to sustainable development? It could be. Okay. It could be. <laughs> um, and in reality, why do I say it could be? We have enough of what we need, without a shadow of doubt, to be one of the most significant economies in the globe. We have the people. We have the natural resources. Um, when I talk about the people, for example, even though I, I, do, I do worry greatly about our youth and the potential that we have to tap into to give them the right platform that they need to thrive, I still look at Nigerian youth and African youth more generally, and I see a people that need very little catalyst to actually blow, as we say, <laughs> in Nigeria. So I, an example I would use, at this time last year, most people, young and old, did not know Ashake, right? He learned, he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge to learn music. He didn't go to the world's finest music schools. He learned it online and by, in his environment. And a year later, He's performing internationally. We all know his songs, organized every time. And you know, it gets us going, we all know it. Purple, yellow, black or white, we know him. And if you see him performing, he's world class. So imagine, let's imagine for one second, if we actually innovated around human capital. 
Let's imagine for once, let me be very specific about some of the, some of the kinds of things that will catapult our, our economic, our socioeconomic development that we don't have today, but we must find ways to get. So if like China and even India, as a region, we decided two million Nigerian Africans, two million Africans every year we were going to give digital skills to in particular, or some of the more relevant modern skills for today. But let me stick with digital and technology skills. Those kind of skills we all know will attract at least $100,000 in salary a year. We know the numbers. A lot of this, especially because of COVID, we've seen that African resources can contribute from wherever they sit in the world. Now, $100,000 times 2 million is $200 billion to GDP contribution. That's almost 10% of the GDP of Africa. It's the fast investment in our human capital is the fastest way to ensure socioeconomic development in Africa. People talk about the um, third, four, let's say the fourth industrial revolution. How do we get there without energy? How do we get there without infrastructure? How do we get there without the financing to do it? All those things are being worked on. That's why people like me and people I see in the room, like Haruma and many other people, we work on this tirelessly to make sure that they're there. But while we're waiting, the journey of educating our talent, the speed with which they pick it up and excel, means that we can turn our GDP overnight and become relevant participants in global value chain, in, in, develop, in delivering to the global value chain, whether they sit in Africa or whether they japa as some of them have, these, this is real and this is something that can happen in very short order because of the rate of change of innovation and technology that we're seeing globally in the world today. And we need to engage on that. And that's why, for me, every single individual who is African or interested in Africa, we must be, in, we must be in contemplating all the time, how do we contribute to human capital development, especially vis-a-vis -vis technology? How do we do that? That gets us on the path to, 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 to socioeconomic development in the manner that we should. Because anything below 7 to 10% growth, which we're absolutely capable of, capable of is underperformance. Mm. And what we're, talking, what, what, we're, what we're talking about here is how do we start to at least perform at the required level and frankly, given the, ta the, the capabilities of our people, outperform. So again, and, and I, I love that you said focus on human capital development because one thing that we know for sure is that the thought leaders, the innovators, the educators of the future will come from the continent. And this is not wishful thinking. The statistics show it, right? The pace at which population is growing in Africa shows that it's going to be a key resource for human and talent development for the rest of the world. I guess the question I have now, and it's interesting that you mentioned the example with Ashaker because skeptics in the audience will say, yes, but how many Ashakers do we have, right? And what are the odds? that of every 200 or 100 million people would raise one ashake. And how long did that take in the making? 
So I guess the question I want to know is, are there buckets or pockets of opportunities in certain sectors within Africa as a continent now, or if we split it up regionally, are you seeing different opportunities and how are those being captured by the current systems that we have in place? So the truth is, um, we don't need too many ashakes to create the kind of... We don't need too many ashakes in any sector I'm talking about for us to achieve the results that we have. Because if you think about the ripple effect of people like him, or the ripple effect of the two million digitally trained people that I'm talking about, they demand better hospitals, better education, better social conditions, and they're contributing to that. So we don't need too many of them. Obviously, the more the merrier, but we really don't need too many of them because of what's happening in the world today. So we all know this. Given where we are from a macro perspective, high inflation, stabilizing, thank goodness, but it's still quite high. Therefore, the high cost of capital and, and also coupled with that, slow growth in some of the key economies in, in, key economies in the world, including Africa. So we have that macro backdrop, exacerbated previously by COVID and now by the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Then we have the geopolitics of many developed countries suddenly realizing they need to change the dependency profile for, for natural resources across the globe, and they need to change the relevance or shift the balance in terms of control of particular aspects of the global, global economy, including security, including food, whether it's human and, and country security or food security, etc. So because of that sort of backdrop, and then you layer on the opportunities of the ever-increasing, I, I think incomprehensibly increasing rate of technology and innovation in the world today, a lot of that coming from Africa, and then climate. And infrastructure, these are areas that we need to focus on and say if we do those areas, those are the areas that will turn the destiny of Africa around. Of course, most important, how could I forget, energy. So the whole world has, is suffering from energy challenges today. We have 40% of the world's sunshine, 40%. As you were saying earlier, our human capital, which we can turn into an, ass, into an asset, it's by definition an asset, but it's not a working asset today. So we can make it a working asset quickly. Those are the areas that we must prioritize. And then, of course, the infrastructure and the financing of them are the key areas that, where there are opportunities. They are exponential. It is hard work, but the rewards are so they're so unbelievable as you begin to unravel them. So if we think about some of these tech companies that have started, I mean, it, I'm telling you guys, if you had invested, you know, $5,000 equivalent or whatever you had in some of these companies, again, to Tochi's point, some of them have been very successful, not all of them have been. But the ones that have been have made many people who did invest in them quite rich. And there's a lot more of that to come, a lot more. So from a personal perspective, 
I, I do look out for the tech sector mm -hmm. and I do find those companies that solve need, real needs in society today, that has a great team and they're well organized and I put whatever little money I can in them. And I think we all should do that. I think it's one of the quickest get rich schemes on this earth. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's so interesting is when you mentioned for the first time in history, Africa is at a position where the world wants what we have, and at the same time, they need what we have. Absolutely. So there's an equal exchange of value. We are strategically positioned now to bring something that is valuable to the table. Mm. The question now is, what are the impediments? And we talked earlier about the switch. Mm. So what needs to happen? for us to unlock all of these different buckets and pockets of opportunities? It must start from us hmm. as Africans. Um, the first thing we need to do is change the way that we think of ourselves and the way that we engage with the world. So on the topic of climate, for example, a lot of public and private sector leaders in Africa think climate is for those people over there. Even though, as Mudupe said earlier in her opening remarks, we're seeing it in Africa. In Africa, in, in Nigeria, for example, we, do, we have rice, which is, is the most commonly eaten um, meal in, in Nigeria. And the largest, single largest producer of rice had their entire production for last year wiped out with the floods. It's real. So we have to engage on these topics ourselves. And when we do that, we come from a position of partnership and being an ally, not begging for favours. So even, I will get to finance in a minute because that we need to unpack that a bit more. But let me just give an example while I'm on the topic. On the topic of debt relief and 70%, the, the, the debt stock in Africa is 70% of our GDP. It's high compared to how much uh, how much capacity we have to generate revenue across the continent. It's high. Do we need to go around begging for debt relief? I don't think so. There are now products where we can say, I will give you climate, I'll give you initiatives that will help you reduce your carbon footprint, pay off my debt. These are real products that are being developed and that we need to find out more about and push today. So that we're not begging people to help us. Rather, we're saying, you have a problem, I have a problem, how do we resolve it? So that change in mindset about being allies and thinking of ourselves as true contributors to, to global solutions is critically important. And then we need to engage the, the, the developed economies in particular with knowledge and competence, which we have, more forcefully about what is really happening and what we need and how we can engage. So we know that the, the, that the, the battle for, 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 for critical minerals and natural resources more broadly is on, it's there. There's China, there's the US, there's Asia, there's the Gulf, there's, you know, most parts of the world are looking for some of these natural resources that benefit them. And we are blessed to have a lot of those natural resources in Africa. Cobalt, platinum, to name a few. Cocoa, so many of them. So what we should be doing with those is actually positioning 
on terms that work for us and engaging in solutions that, that, that we bring to the table that work for us. And then we also need to, again, stop telling ourselves everything is okay and we have all these great things, but really being honest about how difficult it is to deal in some of our African countries and become more brutal about bringing those barriers down. And then we need to take a collaborative approach with the West. We were talking earlier, and I have never, it's so exciting, I have never in all my years, and I think probably in the history of mankind, I need to be careful, seen such an alignment mm. of challenges and opportunities between the developed economies and the developing economies, particularly Africa. We have a chance to engage in a different way. And with that alignment is an interest that I've never seen before. However, the US, the Gulf, the Middle East, China, India, they all want to engage with us. The provider that they don't know how, the facilitators, like for example, the financial institutions don't know how, and the recipients don't know how. So we have a lot of work to do and it needs to be led by Africans. When we start to be very laser sharp about understanding the facts around the problems, innovative about the solutions, and then unrelenting in driving them forward. We often talk about, every time we talk about opportunities and capturing value on the continent, the conversation about leadership comes up. And it's, can we make any real sustainable progress if our leaders are not aligned mm. to the mission? Mm. And so I'm going to put it to you now to say, how important is it, or is there any way that we can navigate the current situation mm. without buying from our leaders? And then on the other hand, are there leaders in Africa right now that have come on board of this new transformation digital agenda, the sustainability agenda? How are they doing it? What is working? Just share some reflections on that bit. So I, I'll ask you a question. Okay. Very um, good. <laughs> so you interview me and I'll interview you. Everybody's okay. So who are our leaders? Yeah? Who are they? <laughs> are they the people that we don't elect into office or that we do elect into office? Are they the public sector CEOs? Who are they? It's all of us. Until we get that memo, we're lost. So where you have good... I used to think at one point in my career that Oh, just you know, private sector, we can do lots of things and everything will be okay. No, we need everyone's hand at that till, literally everyone. And we should stop the blame game. Oh, we have bad political leaders, especially where we have electoral processes that we don't participate in as well. So, but the fact is, where we do have good public leaders, I'll give you examples. So, some of my favorite leaders in the continent, um, President Sal in Senegal, small economy. So sometimes when I speak to my Nigerian leaders or even other bigger country leaders about uh, people like President Sal, oh, it's a small economy. It's a small economy, but it's mighty. Mm -hmm. 
And why is it mighty? He is in charge of his government. They have a strategy. It is regional. They are committed to giving, providing an enabling environment for investors to come in and invest. They do what they say. They're attracting the right sponsors for projects. They understand very clearly that investment in key assets and infrastructure in Africa is critical to our development. And they're now attracting the right financing around it. And so if you stop and look at the recent visits from international um, presidents or presidents or leaders from the developed world, there's a consistent number of countries that they're actually visiting. Senegal usually tops the list. Angola is now coming up there. Rwanda is up there as well. These are countries that are engaging. And, 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 and with Angola, for example, I, you know, with the president of, of, the, of Angola at the moment, he is playing a critical role in result, trying to resolve the, the, the geopolitical issues between DRC and Rwanda. He's also creating the right enabling environment to attract investment from France. Macron just, President Macron just visited there. Total has announced they're making yet another $850 million investment in their, what they call their multi-energy strategy. So it will, it will yield 30,000 barrels of fossil fuels and it will develop extensive amounts of gas assets and it will also invest in solar energy. And the Angolans are, so the Angolans know that their highest asset is their, are their energy assets. And that's their main currency. And to date, they've had, I've, what, I, let me remember the number properly now, yes. To date, they've had 40% of their, of their crude being sold to China. And most of their debt, their public external debt is with Chinese. They understand clearly that they have to take actions to reverse that trend. The Europeans as well want to contribute to reducing the globe's dependency on, on China. And don't get me wrong, China is not entirely a bad thing. There are lots of great things about China's engagement with the rest, with the rest of the world. But there's a, there's a, there's and the Europeans are also trying to solve for their own energy issues, exacerbated by the Russia-Ukraine war. So there's a trade, and the Angolans get it, and they're going for it. And they're making it appropriate and user-friendly for Total, who's been in Angola for 70 years, to be encouraged to carry on investing at this time in the energy section, sector on terms that work for us as Africans. We are saying we want to transition at our own pace, leveraging the resources that we have, the oil that we have, moving as quickly as we can to gas and using the appropriate renewable energy resources that we have when we have them. That, those kind of leaders 
we have in Africa. And then we have the private sector leaders who also are doing their part and need to engage more. And then there's us. There's us. There's us. <laughs> each, each and every one of each us. Each and every one of us. And I think that it's... And I do mean, mm. sorry to interrupt, Richie, I do mean the inclusive us. Mm. I mean people who are African and people who have an interest in Africa. We have to be inclusive. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot to learn from the leaders who have gotten it right. Yes. Or are looking to get it right. And there's a lot of models that can be replicated, models that are proven to work. So, Ms. Yvonne, we're going to pause here for a bit. We'll take two questions from the audience, and then I'll come back and ask you what your dream is. So when you dream of a sustainable Africa, a sustainable continent, what does that look like? So we'll take two questions from the audience, and then we'll round up with final reflections from our distinguished speaker. You get two questions. So this is, okay. One, two. Okay, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jibril. Uh, Yvonne, my question goes to this. As an MD and head of Sub-Saharan African business in the Bank of America, you have highlighted so many value creation within the African continent and so many tech companies or young people coming up. I want to ask, does the bank give like uh, credit facility or support, let's say, to African businesses that are coming up? Because we know at the, uh, at the health end of affairs, most of those companies that are coming up lack access to finance and how do they project themselves globally. So does the bank in any way try to support them through other means and whatever it is that will help them grow? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, so. One of the reasons why I work in Bank of America, and I'm, I'm really proud to work there, is because we really understand the needs, the global needs at this time. And so if, you, if I take our African strategy, our African strategy is focused exactly around these points I talked about. It's focused around energy. What solutions can we provide to help facilitate energy generation in Africa? It's focused around technology. How do we support tech companies? to grow, to scale, and be sustainable, and to continue to innovate and provide solutions. It's around climate. We understand the importance of climate. And it's around infrastructure. How do we help facilitate digital and physical infrastructure in Africa today? We're developing new products all the time. One of the big ones is blended finance. Because with blended finance, because we understand, is, as an American bank, we want to contribute, uh, we, we're a commercial institution, and we do as, want to con contribute to problems that the world has. But we understand that no one indiv in individual institution in the developed world can do it on their own, not even us. So creating that blended finance framework for sustainable finance, focusing on climate and energy at this time, in particular, is something that's a big initiative for us. And we also, I mean, if I, I'll give you an example of um, a deal that we ju did just recently that you know, I, I'm, I'm really quite proud of. AFC, in the last COP27 um, uh, meetings, 
committed to the country of Egypt, that they would um, support them with up to a billion dollars. This has been announced in the press, so I can talk about it. Up to a billion dollars of, um, of financing for climate-related infrastructure development in Egypt. We can deal with AFC, Africa Finance Corporation, to lend to them on a larger scale in a structured finance way, which we did, than if we were dealing directly with the Egyptian government. So we did a back-to-back -back trade with them, which has supported some of that funding. There's a lot of innovation around the kind of things that we're doing today. We're very mindful of um, being part of galvanizing the resources um, that our platform has to drive policymakers <laughs> to bring in the, the wider range of um, investors that we see today. So there are no more non-traditional investors, whether it's asset managers, um, pension funds, insurance companies, philanthropists. We can galvanize those resources to come into structures that are more risk-adjusted. And when I say risk-adjusted, I mean appropriately risk-adjusted to come into the content. We have a big platform, and we're dedicating it in an appropriate ways to Africa's development. Thank you. We'll take the second question now. Okay. We don't have any ladies with questions. Uh, so, good afternoon. Uh, thank you very Hi. much for the talk. It was really inspiring and really fascinating. My name is Aristide, and I'm from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Specifically, Can you speak up a bit, please? Oh, sorry. I'm from Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, to be specific. And I'm from Goma, actually, uh, where the conflict is actually ongoing. Yes. And I wanted to highlight the point that you actually pointed, which is on the ge geopolitics and uh, coming down to power, power dynamics, especially. So myself, I'm, I've been questioning myself to understand uh, what's the role of the African governance in the sustainability agenda and what have we done so far. You actually mentioned something interesting about the Angolan president trying to solve the problem between the Congo and Rwanda, mm. which is, I think, good, but what's, what's the guarantee that this is not another form of greenwashing, kind of political greenwashing, uh, trying to show that we are trying to do well, because this is something that has been ongoing for more than 25 years, and people have been dying all years. Mm. So questioning myself that I'm trying to just understand what's the guarantee, what shows us that this is not another form of greenwashing. And secondly, is more on the youth perspective, as we are privileged to be in Oxford mm. and be asking ourselves these questions. Uh, how do we transition? We are young people and we want to take, take positions, like political position and try to change things. Mm. But how do we transition in this power dynamics that is already installed on the continent and the system that is actually ruling? Uh, is it not going to affect us in any way trying to be somehow negative and try to make profit, try to navigate corruption, trying to uh, navigate a system that is already there? Probably can actually corrupt us and we become those political leaders who are doing wrong for the continent. What's your take on that? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there, and I only have two minutes. Um, so let me try. So you asked me, what's the guarantee? There is no guarantee. There's no guarantee. Um, 
is there, is it wrong to think negatively about the current situation? No. We have to think about the negative aspects, embrace them, and then decide to deal with them. Right? Do we know if what um, the African leaders are doing around the conflicts in DRC at this point is going to work? I don't know. I can't promise you that. But I do know that, the, that there are leaders who are engaging very instructively. And as far as I can see, it's working. And they're engaging from geopolitics, geopolitics rather, and also on the economic side, focusing on where we can attract capital. So you know, because you're from Congo, that that whole Great Lakes region has some of the most important forestation regions in the world. So if, if we are not thinking about how to come up with climate-friendly forestation exercises, countries like Gabon have done it. If we're not thinking about that, of course they're going to greenwash us. And it'll be our fault, not theirs. So the, we, this is what I keep saying. We do have the resources. We have the resources. We have the intellectual capabilities. Conscious that we're running out of time, I'm going to try and answer Tochi's question about you know, what do I see? I have no doubt in my mind that with very little action from a small number of Africans, not the entire 1.3 trillion, this is very important. From a small number of Africans, if we focus on the things I was talking about, focus on where there is global interest at this time, with that global interest comes support in ways that we can't unpack in the last few minutes I have left, including financial. If we focus on those areas, I say them again, climate, energy, technology, infrastructure and finance, all the other things, and of course, importantly, human capital development, sitting above all of that. If we focus on those things and do them on our own terms, I can see an Africa that is really on par with the kind of success that China and India have had in the next 10 years because of the innovation and technology, the rate of, the rate of change of innovation and technology in the world today. It's, it's just evolving so rapidly. So we will, we will not have to go through the steps to um, a better, um, socio-economic um, platform that, that, that happened in the, how far back do I go, 30s, 50s, 60s, even 70s. Because if we think about China's success and even India's, we're looking at less than 50 years ago, very conservatively. We can leapfrog. Yes, but we have to be intentional. We need to take the right actions. And I think that we could be a very relevant economy fueled by our youth. Whether they've jackpad or they've not jackpad, it doesn't matter. Wherever they are. And it's not because we, the older ones, are saying, you youth, just go and do it. Intergenerational problem solving is one of the most important things that we must do at this time. I can see it. That's really why I'm still doing what I'm doing. 
it's difficult, sometimes it's disheartening, but it's absolutely worth it. Thank you so much, Ms. Vaughan. You've shared your perspectives, you've inspired us, and most importantly, you've reminded us about the importance of staying engaged with the continent. Here in Oxford, we're all privileged, but we can do so much. A little yes. can go a long yeah. way. Yeah. So we thank you so much for taking yeah. out the time. Can we please appreciate her for giving a round of applause? Thank you.